Okay, we are in Acts chapter 11, it's 19 to 30. Let's see if we can unpack some things in this text. Um, I've entitled it, The Birth of a Mission Hub. The Birth of a Mission Hub. Now, I remember when I was a kid and my grandfather used to teach and there was another gentleman who used to teach and we were at a small church and they used to like talk like so extensively about Paul and his missionary journeys and this place and that place and I'll be honest with you, I was bored out of my brain. Th- those were the days I'd sit in church and imagine surfing the wall and create, making a, a, a skateboard park out of the church building. And it was so, so tough to focus on what's going on. And now I feel horrible tonight that I've got that task. I've got to take you to some maps and stuff and mention names and history. And I'm going to try and make it as simple as possible so that I don't bore myself. All right? And neither you. So, um, just wanted to say that as a, as a side note. Let's just recap quickly. Peter, hang in there with me. Peter lands in Jerusalem after converting a bunch of Gentiles. Right? Um, he witnessed the first conversion. Let's just get the map up here. So, okay, there we go. So, he witnesses the first Gentile conversion in that town over there, Caesarea, right? But when he comes into Jerusalem after converting these people, he does not receive a hero's welcome. Instead, he's criticized by the Jews because um, he couldn't believe, they couldn't believe that he actually, a Jew, a Christian Jew, ate with Gentiles, all right? The criticism is good. That's what we decided last week because they were testing whether this was from God or not, and that's good. Um, we should test whether things come from God or not. And Peter responds to it, to this criticism, by simply telling the truth. Simple as that. When people criticize you, speak the truth. If you're wrong, you're wrong. Accept it. If, 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 you, are, if you are right, then they must relax. All right. Um, he explains what I termed the inner revelation, the experience that he had with God, the vision that he had, and the outer confirmation that somebody else had a vision as well, which was Cornelius, and then the scriptural concur- concurrence that underpins this revelation that God now accepts uh, Gentiles into the family of God. All right. So the guys then in Jerusalem, they accept Peter's claims and they are happy that this is from God. Right. Hope everybody's okay with that. So as we move on, allow me to just zoom out and remind us of the key theme of Acts. The key theme of Acts is this, the spread of the gospel and the uh, empirical spread of the kingdom of God. The empire of God wants to take over the whole world. And the book of Acts describes that for us. That's why Luke mentions names of towns and the people that's involved. He's trying to paint a picture for us as to how this movement spread throughout the earth. Because remember, Jesus said this is what's going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, right? And he spoke about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And obviously, I don't believe that is talking about the physical Israel. I believe it's talking about the kingdom of God. Um, So far, we have seen the kingdom spread from where? Where did it start? The book of Acts starts right there in Jerusalem, right? Acts chapter 2, on the streets of Jerusalem. And from there, it spread to the temple in Jerusalem. And from the temple, uh, the the message was preached in front of the, um, the Sanhedrin. And basically, all of Jerusalem heard the gospel message. Where does it go next? 
There is a persecution in Jerusalem. And the next place that we read about is Samaria. So from Jerusalem to Samaria, Philip is in Samaria preaching the gospel there. And then from there, he's called where? He's called down south, somewhere around here. And who does he, who does he connect with there? He connects there with the Ethiopian eunuch who's going where? Into Africa. Within a few years, the whole of Jerusalem, Samaria, and Africa had heard of the gospel. And then when we, we read again of Philip, Philip goes where? He goes to Azotus, and from there he makes his way up to Caesarea. Peter follows him from Jerusalem to Lydda, Joppa, Caesarea. And in Caesarea, the Gentiles are converted. So, so far on the map, we see the, the kingdom of God has spread. Everybody with me? Okay, cool. I'm glad my kids take the, there's, a, there's a, a globe there in the ex-old library, and they would look on the map. It's good to do that so that you know sort of where it is. So some of you might not be able to pinpoint this on a world map, but at least you got sort of an idea of how it has, has spread. Okay, now, Luke ends his story here in Caesarea, oh, and, 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 so Peter returns to Jerusalem. That's where we ended off last, last week. And now he's going to take us to a different town, a different city, where the gospel is going to be spread. Um, questions. What gives you spiritual inspiration? Like what makes you really hot for God? Is it going to church? Is it... Hearing the word? Is it reading the Bible yourself? Is it having a good spiritual friend? Is it singing? Fellowship. Fellowship. Hanging out with God's people. Right? Right, cool. Are you aware of who the people in your life are that encourage you? Because we're surrounded by many people. We live in quite a populated world. We're not in a populated town, but... I mean, there's 10,000 people in this town. There's people that we come into contact with. Are you aware of who the people are that encourage you? When you in other words, when you, when you spend time with them and you leave them, you feel better. They leave you feeling better. Who are those people? What's their names? Do you spend time with them? Thirdly, why do you think the term Christian exists? Why does the term Christian exist? Where did it come from? Who made it up? What does it mean? Um, which type of people do you think you can have the biggest spiritual impact on? In other words, if God sent you now and God said, okay, I want you to go on a mission for me, what type of, where do you think He would send you? Rural America? Africa? Poor people? Wealthy people? Who do you think you're most effective to reach out to? Because we're not all, we're not all equally... Um, capable of connecting with different groups of people. You know, we might, you, might, you might be good. Like Jason might be good at connecting with truckers. He understands truckers. That might be a ministry position that, that God can... Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just joking, brother. Use an example there. And lastly, which principles govern your financial giving to God? Which principles? When you make a decision, you're going to give money to God, which governs that. So we're going to touch on all these questions in these few verses that we have tonight. And let's unpack it. Let's start. Chapter 11, verse 19 to 21. 
Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It's sort of like Luke is returning back to sort of the Acts chapter 8 scenario. He's taking us, it's like he took us on a tangent from Acts chapter 8 towards the east, the west, sorry, the west of Israel, what happened there. And now he's taking us back to Jerusalem, back to that point when, 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 when the Christians scattered, and now he takes us north. Let's look at the map. So there we have it. Down here, there's Lydda, Joppa, Caesarea. Now the map is a little bit zoomed out, right? And then there's Jerusalem down there. So the gospel has now only spread in this little area over there and Samaria. That's sort of... And now the text says, where, where did they go? They went to um, Phoenicia, right? That's one of the things mentioned there. And Antioch. And Cyprus. Do you see that? So these cats, they've crossed land to take the gospel. That's how far they spread. So what I found interesting as I read the text, let's just go back to the, to the verses over there. Is the Greek word keruchma is not being used here. And those of you who don't know, the word keruchma is the word generally used for preaching. Remember, it's the concept of the, the, the spokesperson of the king who goes into the marketplace, pulls out a drum, stands on top of the drum, and calls everybody to attention to what the king says. He's the keruch. So when the, when the Greek word for keruchma is used, it's referring to that guy that had that role, and preachers have that job. I'm telling you what the king says. I'm just a messenger. Listen up. You listen up because these are the words of the king, not my words, for example. That's the, typically the word used for preaching. That's not the word that is being used here. The word that's being used here is laleo, which simply means talking. These guys, they just went, and as they went to Phoenicia, and they went to uh, Cyprus, they just spoke. They spoke about what they saw um, and the question then becomes, is, well, how did they know about Jesus, these guys? How did they know about it? They came from Jerusalem. I think they were most probably there in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles in Acts chapter 2, the text tells us that there were people there from these areas, from Phoenicia, from Cyprus, that actually saw them speaking in their languages. So I'm... I would, I would bet my life on it. That's where their conversion happened. So they experienced the Holy Spirit there. They, they saw it. And as they fled from Jerusalem, they talked to Greeks about what they saw in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, they were listeners on the street. In Antioch, they were preachers on the street. There's been a fundamental change in their, in their, um, in their lives. And it made me think, and I've seen it in my own life. If I don't know what to preach about, it means that I have not been reading God's Word. You cannot go to the Scriptures and have an experience with God and read the text and not have something to say. There's something wrong. Because God always fills us when His Spirit is at work. So if you cannot speak about God, it seems like you haven't been listening to God. These guys, 
I'll, I'll draw the lines now. These guys saw the Holy Spirit fall from heaven. They saw the gospel being, they heard the gospel being preached by Peter. Um, and what, what is so interesting for me, it sort, of, it sort of reveals a chain that has been in existence for 2,000 years. Because think about it. There was one event in history. One event. It's the cross. And then there was the pouring out of the Spirit on those who believed in that event and who witnessed it, who were the apostles. Other people saw what the Holy Spirit was doing in the lives of the witnesses. And when they believed, the Holy Spirit entered them and they became witnesses for other people that spread throughout the world. And this chain has been continuing for 2,000 years. I think it's absolutely incredible. And it still works the same way today. Let me put it into simple terms. When you walk in God's Spirit and God's Spirit works through you, people witness it. And all you are doing is you are leveraging the work of the Holy Spirit that's come down a chain of generations from the cross that changes people's lives. I am changed because I saw the Spirit work in people's lives. I heard them speak by the Spirit of God. And think about it for a moment. Do you remember a time when that has happened to you? I can, name, I can name the name of the person and the place where I saw God working in somebody. That changed me. That's what I think happened here. At some point or another, these guys who spread north, they saw the work of the Spirit. And that changed their lives. And they continued to go. And wherever they went, they displayed the same Spirit. And it impacted people's lives. The text says, the hand of the Lord was with them. What do you think that means? The Lord's hand was with them. It could mean that God gave them success on the mission. They received divine approval. They were empowered by God. I think all of that is true. And it reminded me just of the words of Jesus, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I'm going to come back to that point um, nearing the end. Okay, so first few verses. Let's go. Verse, uh, yeah, just to also point out one thing there. It says there that um, some of them, verse 20, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch. Now let's check where Cyprus. You see Cyprus is there, right? It's the island. Now where's Cyrene? I had to zoom the map out more because Cyrene is down there. In, in Libya. So there are guys that come from Libya and from Cyprus all the way to round about there. That's where Syrian Antioch is, which is quite a, quite a journey. Let's go on. Verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Can you imagine the text says that about you? That is pretty cool. Now, the question is, let's recap quickly. 
Greeks in Antioch had now accepted the Word of God by some unknown guys. We know where they come from, but we don't know their names. Okay? The church in Jerusalem hears about this and sends Barnabas specifically. question is, why Barnabas? This is the third time that Luke mentions Barnabas in the book of Acts. The first time we're introduced to him is in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, where the text says, <coughs> he sold a piece of land and he brought the proceeds to the apostles. The same text also says that he was a Levite from guess where? Cyrene. He was a, oh, Cyprus, sorry. He was a Levite from Cyprus, which is that island over there. He was what they call a Hellenistic Jew. You might wonder, well, what is a Hellenistic Jew? A Hellenistic Jew is, is a, um, it's a person that has got a combined uh, Jewish religious faith combined with his um, Greek culture. So, and some of the Jews didn't like these guys. But in any case, so that's who we are dealing with. We're dealing with, and that's also when the text says that Greeks were converted in Antioch, he's actually referring to Hellenistic Jews, the same type of person that Barnabas was. So, um, the second time in the book of Acts that he appears, it's when he bridges the gap between Paul and the other apostles. Remember when Paul came to Jerusalem, the the, the apostles didn't want to accept him. And then Barnabas said, hey dude, come in, and and he sort of spoke up for, for Paul. And now we see him here being sent to Antioch. This is the third time we see him. Um, the only reason that I could think about why he was chosen was because he was from Cyprus. And he could potentially connect with these guys who's already started doing the work over there. Um, so it seems like his buddies from Cyprus had, had opened up really a can of worms for the kingdom of God there in Antioch. So um, I think he was probably, amidst those in Jerusalem, he was the best guy for the job. They needed somebody with more understanding of the Hellenistic way of life, and somebody who knew Christ. And so they sent Barnabas up there. Now, just want to summarize verse 23, because I thought that was pretty cool. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. It's a, it's a beautiful text. Um, and, you know, the first words that came to my mind was, he came, he saw, he encouraged we, we, we've heard the other phrases, right? The, the, the warrior phrases. He came, he saw, he conquered. And the introvert one. Remember the introvert one? He came, he saw, he went home. And then you have this guy. He came, he saw, he encouraged. It's like in his being. He saw what? He saw what God had done. He saw the grace of God. He saw Hellenistic Greeks convert. Come to Christ. Let me remind you. When Jesus said to the disciples, they would do greater things than he did, what did he mean? That they would do, raise more people from the dead? That they would heal amputees? No. The greatest miracle on planet earth is when hardcore unbelievers or hardcore pagans or hardcore lost people through the miracle, miraculous work of Christ and His Spirit come to Him. There's nothing more powerful than that. This is what Barnabas saw. And this gave him tremendous joy. And what was his encouragement to them? He says to them, cleave 
to the Lord with purpose of heart in the original language. Hold on to Him with everything that you have. Stay close to God with all your heart. And it's pretty simple to avoid that. Um, to, to avoid um, not doing that is to uh, avoid laziness. Um, yes, I'm mixing up my words here. I'm so tired tonight, guys. It's pretty simple to do. Avoid laziness, avoid lies, avoid darkness, and avoid sin is a way that you can cling to the Lord with all you have. What a man. Luke describes him as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Three descriptions, three references to the man in the book of Acts, and here are three practical attributes of such a man. Number one, generosity. Just think about this guy. Generosity. Compare yourself. When people in the church needed something, what did he do? He said, okay, I'm going to sell, I'm going to sell my land, and I'll bring it for God's people. He cared about people. He was the man that the rich young ruler should have been. The rich young ruler who didn't want to sell his stuff, that fell short. Like, like if, he, if he went and he sold his stuff, he would have been as good as Barnabas. That puts Barnabas on a whole other level. Not only was he generous, but mediation, another principle of um, Barnabas. He stood in the gap for Paul. He said, I'll stand between you and other people. I'll be a peacemaker. I'll bring people together. It's like Barnabas looks out for the rejected. He looks out for what they call the marginalized, right? He makes friends with the guy standing in the corner and nobody wants to talk to at the party. That's Barnabas. He would give up his own money to help others. He would give up his own social comfort to connect with somebody that feels alone. He would stand in the gap for people who are at odds with each other. And then thirdly, encouragement. He encouraged because why? He was encouraged. He encouraged because he was encouraged. He had a capable... It's very hard to encourage people, right? And to, to be positive and like, if you are not. So how do you get yourself to the point of being positive enough so you can encourage others? You have to look for the encouraging things. If you continually look for the negative things, you're never going to reach a point where you can encourage others. You've been wired to think about negative stuff. I mean, we can look everywhere and find negative stuff, right? Everywhere. You've got to look at the positive stuff. And if you want to know about that, you've got to come talk to me and Alfreda. We'll give you some real cool tips. It's very easy to sit in a small town in America and look at the negative stuff. And think about home and all the positive stuff over there. It doesn't help. You have to learn to look at the stuff that is great, that the place where you come from never had. Otherwise, it will just get you down. Anyway, so that was just a side note. He was encouraged, Barnabas, because his priorities were straight. He was encouraged about God's stuff. When he saw the Spirit of God do a work, he's like, oh my goodness, how can I not be happy? How can I not encourage you? So his priorities were straight. People like this do the kingdom of God good. God uses people like this to draw people to Him. It will happen naturally and by default. And that's what we read in this text over there at the end. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Alright. Let's move on. Verse 25-26. Barnabas fetches Paul from Tarsus. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. All right. So let's just recap this. Barnabas arrives in Antioch, and he's like, he's excited. Wow, this is incredible. These people are connecting with God. At last, the Hellenistic Jews are accepting Jesus. I think that they were more zealous than any other Jewish group. Any case. And then he says, okay, uh, let me go find Paul. Why? Why? And what was Paul doing in Tarsus? Do you guys remember? What is he doing in Tarsus? Acts chapter 9, verse 29 to 30 tells us what happened. Paul was in Jerusalem with the disciples, with the apostles. And he went about preaching everywhere. And then he came across, guess what group of people? The Hellenistic Jews. He came across the Hellenistic Jews. And he started having a ding-dong with them. They didn't like that at all. They got really angry at him. They wanted to kill him. And then the text says, what did the apostles do? They sent him off. They exported him to Caesarea. Uh, to Caesarea and then they sent him to Tarsus. You want to see where Tarsus is? Let's go back quickly. Uh, Tarsus is right up there by Cilicia. So let's go back one more map. So, so Paul was in Jerusalem, and then these guys wanted to kill him. So the apostle said, hey, we need to put you under protective custody. Let's take you from there. We'll take you to um, Caesarea, and the brothers there, they will make sure that you make it to Tarsus. And there's Antioch, by the way. So that's, that's where Barnabas is at the moment, and that's where, where Paul is. So they're pretty close to each other, which, is, which I think was like planned by God. I think. All right. So he started preaching the gospel to these Hellenistic Jews, and then he is transported up to, to Tarsus. Um, I don't think Paul has ever preached in, in Antioch. He's not the one that brought the gospel there, it seems like. So I believe there are two reasons why Barnabas goes and fetches Paul, in my opinion. The text doesn't tell us, just two thoughts that came from my mind. First of all, Jesus sent them out two by two. If you go read Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 2, that's the methodology that Jesus used. I think that perhaps Barnabas wanted a wingman that knew what he was talking about. They would make a perfect couple of preachers. Because Paul was really well equipped in what? Judaism. Right? And Barnabas, he was really well equipped in what? He comes from Cyprus. He's a Greek. And what is a Hellenistic, a Hellenistic Jew? A mixture between Greek culture and Judaism. And so he, the two of them will make an excellent um, a partnership. But both of them had something in common. And that is that they loved God deeply. They could feed off each other. They complemented each other. And one guy's weakness would be another guy's strength. That's one reason. Another reason potentially is this. The door was open now. Mark chapter 9 verse 38. Jesus talks about the idea of you know, pray for workers to come into the field when the harvest is ripe. Previously, the field of the Hellenistic Jews was shut. They didn't want to hear anything. They wanted to kill Paul. Now it was open. It's interesting that other guys who are no-name guys 
gets more done with the Hellenistic Jews than the Apostle Paul. You can be a nobody and a nothing in the greatest scheme of things. And God can use you more powerfully than the greatest apostle. Because it's not about you and me. It's about, it's about His Spirit. So Barnabas goes and takes Paul out of protective custody. And he says, come, let's, we've got work to do. We've got to take out these um, Hellenistic Jews. I think that's what, that's what happened. And then we have, this, we have this section of text that talks about the term Christian. Now, I'm a little, bit of a, a little bit of a rebel about this word, and you've heard me talk about it. And um, I've been a bit hard, a bit harsh on the word Christian. But, you know, I'm, I'm honest with you, it's confession time. Um, the reason why I feel that way about this word is because it's not used often. It's used three times in the New Testament, and this is the first time. And I always used to look at this text and say, you know what? It doesn't seem like the Christians call themselves that word. Like it's a, it's a word that came from outside, maybe a, a derogative term, like they called Christians Nazarites or, or whatever the case may be. That's how, how I've always perceived it to be. Rather, we hear the word disciple over and over again. And I like the word disciple because disciple, a disciple can be defined. It's a person who actually follows Christ, matitais. Not, and, and the word Christian is this religious term for me. It's like, what does it mean to be? A, everybody says, oh, I'm a Christian. What does it mean? Does it mean you committed to Christ? Does it mean you've given up your life for Him? Or does it mean you go to church? What, what, which one is it? And so I've, I've developed a sort of a negative feeling towards the word. Um, but I'll be honest. When I did this study, I came to a slightly different conclusion. I think, in my opinion, I, th I think what happened here was I think there were all these groups. You can imagine the religious groups. They, they were Pharisees, and they were Sadducees, and they were groups known as the Hellenistic Jews. I mean, that's how the book of Acts describes them. They were Jews. And now you have this new hybrid mixture thing. This group of people, ex-Jews, half-Greeks, Gentiles. Certainly there must be some identifying mark for this group as well. The people who believe in Jesus Christ, who died on a cross in Jerusalem. And potentially, that's why the word Christian developed. Maybe it did. Maybe it's not. And the scholars are debating. They don't know where the word came from. Outside the church or inside the church. Either way, there's actually nothing wrong with the word itself. Christian. Of Christ is what it means. Follower of Christ. There's actually nothing wrong with that word. So I need to repent of that. But however, over time, words, even though it might mean that, um, grammatically, it doesn't necessarily mean that when we say it. And I think the word Christian has become such a shallow form of Christianity that I opt for rather saying, hey, are you a disciple of Jesus or are you not? Because that requires action from your part and commitment. The Bible tells us how to become a disciple. The Great Commission tells us to make disciples, not Christians. So it's just an, a better term for me, but I need to... I thought I'll just share that with you. If you call yourself a Christian, that, that's wonderful. You are of Christ. Okay, let's close off with these um, last verses. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. 
This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. All right. Wes mentioned this text for us last week, and it's beautiful because it just fits in with, with what is being said here. What we have here is a legitimate case in the first century of a prophet who made a prediction. Now, to remind you, brother, it was Deuteronomy 18, right? I think so. Yeah, verse, verse 20, uh, 21. How, you must say, okay, verse 20, but a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You say things that doesn't come from me and you claim to be a prophet, you need to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? That's the big question. How do I know? You know, people go around saying, well, this is what God says. Well, how do I know that's what God says? And then he says, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. So it's very simple to see if somebody really is a prophet. Okay, predict something. That's what Agabus did here. Predict something. Let's see if it comes true. If it comes true, I'll believe you're a prophet. And you're speaking on behalf of God. And I'm telling you now that most Christians who hold on to prophets today, they don't test it at all. Or the prophecies are very vague. This isn't really vague. There's going to come a drought. And I, I did my research over there. And um, Josephus, for example, he describes this drought. It's a real deal. We see the reality of this drought in um, the book of Corinthians as well. Josephus describes a famine um, that did oppress them at the time, and many people died for the lack of what was necessary to procure food withal. Queen Helena sent some of her servants to Alexandria with money to buy a great quantity of grain, and others of them to Cyprus to bring a cargo of dried figs. That's what Josephus says, historian. He doesn't even believe in God. It's, it's a legit historical thing. So here we have in the New Testament a legit prophecy that's historically verifiable. Pretty cool. What a beautiful prophecy that came true. Um, let me close off with just some principles about good giving. And I've sort of highlighted them over there. Let's just read it again. So there's Christians in Jerusalem. They are really bent under the the pressure of a drought, and these people in Antioch, the Christians there decide, hey, we're going we're gonna to financially support these guys. So look at that. The disciples, once again, it uses the word disciple, not Christian. As each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Um, just a few giving principles, I think, that we can pick up in that text. Giving is a personal decision. It's between you and God. You put money, it's between you and God. Secondly, giving a, the giving amount should be determined by ability, as they were able. Unfortunately, there are some churches in the world where they say, well, you know, you have to give until it really hurts, like when you're really in debt. Go draw all the money out of your credit card. No, you're not able. That's not what, what the text says. Thirdly, the purpose of giving should be clearly understood. They knew what the giving was for. The giving was for 
those who didn't have food in Jerusalem because of the drought. It was very clearly spoken what it is. And then lastly, trustworthy men should administer the giving. They chose Paul and Barnabas to take responsibility for it. I think these are simple principles that we know pretty well. Let's close off. Final thoughts. If the hand of the Lord is not evident in your life, the time has come for some soul-searching. This might sound a bit rough, but I think it's extremely important. Do you feel God is using you to impact people's lives? Because when the Spirit is at work in you, it will put you in contact with people and it will make you a blessing to those people. Because God wants to use us as salt and light. And you can feel it when God puts you in contact with somebody that's looking. You can feel when you are having influence. You can feel it when you're making an impact. I can give you some examples. Um, we had our young adults thing on Friday night and Grace spoke about this girl that was going to come visit her at a house, uh, this family that was at the church this morning. And they were from a serious Pentecostal background, and she was a bit concerned that, you know, about some of the things that she would be uh, talking about, and she didn't know how to address that. And we, we sort of had a Bible study about some of those things, about speaking in tongues and about the, the, the preaching, preaching of women in the church and, um, you know, God speaking to you from heaven, you know, a typical Pentecostal issues and she said to me today that she had such a wonderful conversation with this girl and and that she that the girl actually said that they felt that they were sent here this morning by God and now the two of them because of their conversations this week they're going to start having a bible study together and I think that that's a perfect example of what I'm trying what, what I'm referring to when I say the hand of the Lord is is with you because when you're available God will provide these opportunities for you to do the Spirit's work. But if you're not involved in the Spirit's work, I would say something is wrong. Because God wants to use us. The question is, are we available? Do we look out for, for those opportunities? Jason had an opportunity this past week. We had a conversation with a, a guy that he sells logs to, and he kept on mentioning God the whole time. He had the opportunity to mention God the whole time. And I'm excited to hear what happens after that. But God gave him an opportunity to be of influence to this guy. And the guy listened. The guy gave him a nice handshake when they left. It's like, hey, Jason can move away and say, hey, God has given me an opportunity. The hand of the Lord was with me to be able to talk about him in front of this um, person. So the big question we need to ask is, and I, and I see this is with the people I meet especially outside of the church. You know, there's a misunderstanding of, of what it means to be a Christian. That's why I'm, I'm going to throw that word out for a second, what it means to be a disciple. A disciple does what Jesus does, goes where Jesus goes, speaks what Jesus speaks. And so I, I, I meet, meet this lady, and she, she tells me about her spiritual life. It's about, Yo, you know, oh, so how's your spiritual life going? And she says, Yo, no, you know, I don't get enough time to read my Bible and, you know, and just pray and quiet time. And I'm like, those things are great. That's great. But that's not really the mission. Are you the mission or are you on mission? Because that's sort of like you are the mission. It's just about you. It's about you praying. It's about you reading Bible. What about 
Who are you helping to find Jesus? Like, what is the outward things that you are doing to reach people for Him? And here's the big thing. Every time you make contact with somebody that you could have influence on and they open up, like God gives them to you to help, it inspires your spiritual life. It's like, it's like the people that, and I include myself there as well, when, I, when I'm focused on me, or what I need to do for me the whole time, my spiritual life, I sort of digress. But the moment I switch over and I say, how can I be a blessing to somebody else? How can I make somebody, help somebody else to know Him better? How can I encourage somebody else like Barnabas? How can I give up my time and my effort on somebody else? The more it pushes me into prayer. Because I want to pray now for them and I need God's power in me. So that I can do this effectively. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a really a misunderstanding in general Christianity that it's all inward focused. That being committed to God means how much I pray and read my Bible. That's not what we see in the book of Acts. What we see in the book of Acts is that you go on a mission. I had this, young, this lady that I spoke to about this, I think it was this week or last week, and I tried to use an illustration to sort of explain it, but it's like this. It's like you, she likes playing tennis. It's like you sign up for the tennis club. You become a member of the tennis club. You become a Christian. You become a disciple. And you sort of go to the tennis club, but you sort of don't really play tennis. But you remember. You'll play a little bit of tennis now and then. You can eat the ball and whatever. And, and you go to practice, but you never go into a competition. How boring it must be to be a part of that tennis club. The purpose of being part of the tennis club in my world, it's not just for recreation. You want to improve yourself. You want to participate. You want to expand. And sometimes, for many Christians, um, Christianity is just recreational. In a sense, it's just recreational. It takes care of my guilt feelings, and it's a place that I go to now and then. It's my religious thing that I do, uh, but I never get involved with making disciples. It's just, it's not part of it. But you see how, you know how your training changes when you actually got to go play against somebody else? The training intensifies. You become a better tennis player. And the same thing with making disciples. When you're focused on letting God and praying about letting God use you for other people, now suddenly your Bible study intensifies and your prayer intensifies. I think I've said the same thing five times in a different way. Sorry. All right. Many discourage. Some do nothing and few encourage. There are really a lot of discouraging people in this world. Oh my goodness, we could just drive out here on the road. We'll find somebody. The guy who throws you a finger at the traffic light. Well, that's encouraging. It makes me excited about life. People who are rude, cut you off in traffic. People in the shops who look at you funny when you walk past them. There's all kinds of people that discourage you. You have a conversation with somebody. The only thing I can talk about is negativity. Oh, my life is so depressed. Oh, everything goes... Yo, that's not of the, the Spirit of God. So ask yourself the question, does my presence make your life any better or worse? Or is it indifferent? Whether, whether I'm in your life or not, ask yourself question, that question to people in your life. Whether I'm in your life or not, does it make your life better or not? Thirdly, a missional buddy is great for your spiritual life and for the kingdom of God. I think I've just spoken a lot about that. Barnabas could have gone on on his own. He could have done that. But he didn't want to. He saw the missional value of having someone like-minded with him. Jesus saw the missional value as well. I think there's definitely biblical principle in that. And then lastly, giving should flow from love, not obligation. 
obligated giving does not produce heavenly gold. You are not going to be able to pave heaven with giving that's obligated. All right. Any thoughts?